Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. If you're like me, you understand abstractly that our system for producing meat and other food in this country is broken. It inflicts horrific suffering on animals, harms the environment, and leaves us prone to disease. But you may not know the half of it. I certainly didn't before this special Talking Feds episode about our farming system. The harms of big agriculture that I did know about are far more severe than I recognized. And then there are the harms that American consumers are scarcely aware of. Big ag's near monopolistic control over every aspect of meat production. It's displacement of more than one million independent family farms. It's production of more than 10% of the nation's greenhouse gases. It's promotion of unsafe working conditions for hundreds of thousands of employees drawn disproportionately from communities of color. And it's conversion of the neighborhoods in which its factories are located into swamps of sickness. The problem is so woven into our daily lives that imagining a better system can seem beyond our reach. But there are national leaders who are doing the heavy lifting of shining a light on the impact of big ag on the economy, environment, and good health of Americans and pushing for tenable solutions. And we're really fortunate that three of them are here today. And they are Leah Penniman, a farmer, activist, and author. In 2010, she co-founded Soul Fire Farm, a community farm whose work is centered around empowering and growing the ranks of Africa heritage farmers in our food system. She is the author of Farming While Black, A Guide to Small Step Farming. Leah Penniman, welcome to this special episode of Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry, for having me. Michael Pollan, the James L. and John S. Knight Professor of Journalism at UC Berkeley. He is the author of eight books, six of which have been New York Times bestsellers, And they include The Omnivore's Dilemma, perhaps the most influential book on food and eating in the last 50 years, and How to Change Your Mind, his 2018 account of the renaissance of scientific research into psychedelic substances. In 2010, he was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Michael Pollan, thanks very much for joining us on Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. Good to be here. And finally, Senator Cory Booker, the junior United States Senator from New Jersey. He serves on, among others, the Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition and Forestry and the Small Business Committee. A presidential candidate in 2020, Senator Booker helped craft the First Step Act, the most sweeping set of criminal justice reforms in a generation. Before coming to the Senate, he served as mayor of Newark from 2006 to 2013. Senator Booker, we are really honored to welcome you to this special episode of Talking Feds. I would join any place Leah and Michael are, then please count me in. Let's begin here. 
in the national imagination, the mainstay of the food system in some ways, the backbone of the economy are these innumerable, small, often family farms. In actuality, six huge companies control two-thirds of the nation's meat production. When and how did this happen? We started permitting consolidation in the food industry, and not only the food industry, really during the Reagan administration is where you have a sea change in antitrust policy. We have this set of laws designed to prevent industries from becoming highly concentrated. And the reason for that was not just to protect the consumer against price gouging and things like that, but to protect producers, uh, the ranchers and farmers who sell to these companies. But there was a change of policy in the Reagan administration. It was Robert Bork's theory that was instituted in, I think, 83. As long as the consumer wasn't hurt by the combination of companies and it resulted in some form of improved efficiency, the government wouldn't stand in its way. This despite the fact the word consumer doesn't even appear in the Sherman antitrust laws. It was really about concerns about power. So we've allowed this industry to become incredibly concentrated with implications for producers that have been absolutely disastrous. And as we saw during the pandemic, with implications for the consumer that have been also disastrous. That's a really good point about Bork. Before he was a court of appeals judge and then a failed Supreme Court nominee, he made his name with the antitrust paradox, which did basically reconceptualize all of antitrust law generally in favor of big business. By the way, the, the corporate concentration has been going on across sectors in the country, but in the ag sector, it's been particularly devastating. You take the hog industry that has so dramatically concentrated, we've lost 90% of our hog farmers in just a matter of decades. Independent family farmers are being driven out at alarming rates. And the pain of that, by the way, is to see the suicide rate, which is three times higher amongst farmers and ranchers than it is for the rest of America, as people who've inherited a farm that's been in their family for four or five generations going back to the 1800s, they're the people that lost it, but the economics just don't add up for them. And so when you start getting these companies, JB, Tyson's, that so vertically integrate everything completely, the people that are being hurt, number one, are the farmers, hog farmers, chicken farmers have been turned into contract farmers, more akin to sharecropping than with massive debt constantly on the brink but the story that needs to be told also is just the hollowing out of rural America. I talked to a farmer who said that when he went to his high school, it had hundreds of kids. Now that same high school only has 30 because all of the consolidation of the land around it under one single company has now sucked all of the capital out of that. While you used to have a lot of processors and people who sold seed and a lot of these smaller businesses that made up that small town, they've all been wiped out because of the few companies that control all of the inputs and who buy up the singularly often are the people that are buying the cattle and livestock. So it's changed America and it's created a lot of times, understandably in rural towns, this resentment towards the larger understanding of America. Hey, I thought if I just did like my parents did, work hard, play by the rules, that it would work out. Well, the game is rigged against them because of our failure to enforce antitrust laws, the Packers and Stockyard Act and more. 
And we're seeing that too. So I've been farming since 1996, so over 25 years, and live in rural upstate New York where the dairy industry has been completely hollowed out. And the main job that you can get up here is working in the private prisons. We train farmers. We work with thousands of aspiring black and brown farmers every year. And folks simply cannot make it work economically. They might be trained. We might even set them up with land, but still, well over 95% of small-scale farmers need to rely on an outside income just to make ends meet. So you have to have your spouse working as a, a teacher or a logger, or you need to have agritourism or something else to make ends meet. The irony is that we actually have a multi-year waiting list of folks who want to get into farming and they want to do it right. They want to do regenerative, sustainable farming. They want to feed their communities. They want to integrate social justice. But it simply is not economically viable the way that the food system is set up in the United States for folks to actually make it doing arguably the most important work, which is growing food for the community. There's another irony here, which is the hauling out is sort of news to so many people that aren't in the farming communities. We retain the myth and proud folklore of the innumerable family farmers and small farmers bringing food to America's tables. Let me follow up on this concretely. There are these huge six businesses. They're taking over everything from slaughter to wrapping things and delivering them to supermarkets. But what is it exactly about how they've changed things that makes it economically non-viable for farmers at least to stay in the business of just raising livestock to the point of slaughter? They're setting prices. They have such power regionally. Walmart of the farming kind of thing. Much like that. So they divide up the country. And if you're a rancher in, say, Colorado, it's not like you can even go to all four of the big packers. You have to go to the one that's dominant in your area because you can only move your animals so far. And essentially, the, the ranchers become price takers. And so they have used their market power to drive down prices. And that's what makes it very hard. Farmers who could make a living with a couple hundred head a year now have to have thousands just to keep their heads above water. And that has to do with the fact that they've lost all power over the ability to set prices. It's a get big or get out, unfortunately, for many of these folks. And they face lives of fear and anxiety. I went out to the Midwest to meet with farmers, and most of them I met with were Republican farmers. And I'll never forget how this industrialized system has put their families in crisis, where one of the guys had his neighbors come meet with me, and one neighbor was afraid to even complain because he was too afraid that the one buyer that he had would cut him off and therefore throw his family into destitution. That's how much fear that they live in. And the industrialization, they know. These are folks who have been stewards of their land for generations. They know what's happening. One, again, Republican farmer was telling me about how he used to be able to fish in his creek he used to be able to drink from his well, and now he can't because of the CAFOs that are now surrounding him that are doing business in a way that's driving not only their family out of business, but also spoiling their land. So this is a crisis that most Americans, unfortunately, when we as end consumers, we often don't think about the systems that are vital to our eating every single day and how broken they are. And I know we'll get to it, but the end users are suffering enormously as well. And we are all part of a broken system. In many ways, we have a common pain, but we have failed yet to establish a sense of common purpose to fix it. And the winners are the uh, CAFOs that are concentrated animal feeding operations. So we have a hole in antitrust, but the legal problems, I gather, 
are greater than that. It's not simply antitrust enforcement, but big ag turns out to have a sweetheart relationship with the government in several ways. They basically have been able to skirt federal emissions regulations and labor laws under special exemptions. How did that part of the picture arise? Well, look, I'm a relatively young United States senator. I've been there for eight years, and I was just stunned at how the system works. I was a fourth senator in the history of this country, but I'm sorry that there are more who just said, I I just can't take any corporate dollars. I can't take money from lobbyists because the system is so rigged and people are right to be skeptical and cynical. And big food, big ag, has deep relationships on both sides of the political aisle and control a lot of the agenda. And again, if you just see how warped the agenda is, the reason why we have this massive monopolistic monocropping system is because the ag bill and the farm policy has been shaped by these extraordinarily powerful interests. Now, look, back in the 50s, you understand why Nixon and others were moving towards this system. Their goal was just, hey, food crisis out there, we're going to get cheap on the table, lowest cost possible, and God, let's make sure it could stay on the shelf for as long as possible. That became shaping our food system. And Michael was so brilliant in his pinpointing. It really was by the time you got to the Reagan era and the Bork era that transformed our antitrust laws. Those two figures now suddenly began to have these very few companies suddenly control our entire food system, control Washington, the decisions they make. And unfortunately, as you watch companies like Monsanto, now Bayer, become so powerful, patenting biology and really changing our heritage and the way people used to collect their own seeds and more, what they've done, these collateral sort of awful realities, they've poisoned our soil. We're 5% of the globe's population, but we use 20% of the chemicals, pesticides, being spread that are fueling cancers, things that are banned in other countries, killing soil, poisoning our rivers, creating one of the biggest dead zones around North America, right in the Gulf Coast, the size of Rhode Island. You just have all of these aspects of the system that are hurting more and more Americans, whether it be our health, whether it be driving climate change, whether it be the agricultural workers who work amidst these chemicals and are poisoned, or the people that work in meatpacking plants. Every part of this system, all the way to the end users, as the only United States senator that lives in a lower-income black and brown community, I see what's happening to our children as one of my heroes in the food reform world, a guy named Ron Finley, says, in South Central, we have drive-bys and drive-throughs, and the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. And these drive-throughs are cheap, empty calorie, no nutrition, highly processed, hyper-processed foods, and our subsidies controlled by these big companies are driving our policy. Most people are shocked when they hear in Washington, our federal dollars, only 2% of our ag subsidies, only 2% go to the foods that another part of government said should be the majority of our diet, those fruits and vegetables. So the system is broken. It is literally killing us in dramatic ways. And it's wiping out our heritage, all these independent family farmers and ranchers, not to mention what it's doing to our environment, not to mention what it's doing to animals. So, Leah, let me ask you, I mean, to farm without having to kowtow, excuse the pun, to big ag, what kinds of sacrifices does it entail? Absolutely. Thank you, Senator, for for laying out all the the ways the food system is broken. I definitely agree with all of that. I would also push us to 
question whether the food system might be working as it was designed and whether it was really designed to take care of the environment and workers, the land, or whether it was really designed with a profit motive. And the reason I ask that is because I think that some of these issues go back before even consolidation, especially with farm workers. You look at 1930s when we had our first Fair Labor Standards Act and National Labor Relations Act, farm workers were excluded and are still excluded. There's still no overtime pay. There's still no right to a day off in seven. There's inadequate child labor protections. There's, on a small farm, not even a minimum wage and, and rampant abuses. And 85% of the people who actually grow our food are people of color. So it's the farmers, but it's also the farm workers. And it's truly a racial justice issue. If you look at the whole history of this country, the agricultural system was originally you know, born in chattel slavery and really has changed form. But that fundamental concept of the exploitation of labor and the theft of land as underpinning the agricultural system hasn't changed. And so, yes, and, right? Yes, and. And so as far as Soulfire Farm, and I would say this whole rising generation of black and brown regenerative farmers who are interested in these ancestral practices and we want to sequester carbon and increase biodiversity and feed our communities and think of food as a human right, we too are part of this economic system and we too have had to try to find ways to subsidize our work. And while we're not getting subsidies by and large from the government or working with these corporations, it has often been in the form of creating educational programs that are fee-for-service or doing agritourism or doing high-end value-add niche products like jams and herbal teas that we sell online and use those funds in order to pay for our no-cost vegetable deliveries. So we have to hustle too, but we're just making it work in a different way. And I would say that all of the work the U.S. Department of Agriculture is supposed to be doing to support farmers. There's only two programs that have really been successful to support our type of farmers, and that's the EQIP program, specifically the Conservation Stewardship Program, the High Tunnel Program, the Forestry Programs underneath it, and the Socially Disadvantaged Farmers and Ranchers, the 2501, has been moderately helpful, but it's way too bureaucratic. And so I would like to see the USDA completely switch its priorities while we're getting 2% right now to support our kind of farming and corporate ag is getting the 98% it needs to be switched. And the very survival of the planet depends on it. Industrial ag is the leading driver of climate change and land loss conversions and biodiversity loss and water pollution. And we simply cannot survive continuing to extract from the earth and exploit our workers. We won't be able to feed our nation in a generation. So we're really hoping that that will change. So really impressive on your part, but I think it's fair to say not a viable model for the tens of thousands of dispossessed family farmers. Let me pick up on that. It's really important to remember that the system we have is not the result of the free market. It has not been a free market system since FDR's day when we first started having these national farm policies. It's a game played according to a set of rules that's encoded in the Farm Bill, produced by the committee that Senator Booker is on, that essentially creates the incentives and disincentives. And at least since the Nixon administration, those incentives have been around driving production of cheap calories, corn and soybean in particular, that yield was what was rewarded, sheer amounts of calories. One of our biggest problems in agriculture is overproduction. I don't think people realize that. Thrown away and unbelievable. Yeah. Explain how that happened. So one of the reasons we like overproduction is, as the senator well understands, politically, anything that raises food prices is a huge problem. We're seeing that right now. Anything that lowers them takes the issue off the political radar. So Nixon was faced with inflation of food prices that was quite dramatic in the 70s before his reelection. He with the help of the agricultural economists in his ag department, came up with a system that would subsidize agriculture in a way that would drive farmers to get big or get out, to plant fence row to fence row, 
And it worked. It did drop food prices. It made meat, which was a luxury good, available to lots of people. These are very popular things. And it's what the consumer sees. But of course, the cost was immense. It seems to me that given that something like 40% of farm income is government payments, that in exchange for that support, we should get some public goods, not just cheap calories that are so abundant we have to feed them to our cars in the form of ethanol. Why don't we bring another screen to agricultural policy? Health, for example. If we measured our agricultural policy against its impact on public health or, as Leah suggested, on the environment, uh, the potential for agriculture to actually mitigate climate change is immense. But we're not doing that yet. And one of the reasons we're not doing it is the power of the industry and political contributions. But another, frankly, is that for many years, we gave the ag committees to these big farm state legislators and urban legislators, such as Senator Booker, had no interest in serving on the agriculture committee. And I think that one of the great prerequisites for change and what is to me so exciting about the fact that Senator Booker chose to be on the ag committee is that that is a necessary prerequisite to beginning to reform American agricultural policy. Just to add, because I was very struck, it was a surprise to me in preparing for this episode, goes back before Nixon, Roosevelt cuts deals with Southern Democrats for exactly the reason you say. So you have this kind of double whammy of monolithic focus on output and popular meat on the table, but also special lobbying deals and really senseless horse trading. Again, no pun intended. Except that FDR era farm policy really did have a goal of supporting prices, keeping them in a certain range. It was called parity so that farm workers and factory workers were in a similar kind of place. And that was removed by Nixon. There's no effort now to hold prices up. I definitely don't want to take on a professor on food <laughs> legislative history. I just want to drive home because I want your listeners to know that we haven't even yet fully covered the grandeur of the crisis. So just a few of the things that people should know is the way we raise animals now is so different than the heritage we're from. The horrors that folks even don't want you to see, they cover up these concentrated animal feeding operations. So the suffering and the horror that's going on with animals is clear, but it is a human threat as well because to keep the animals alive in that close to unnatural conditions packed in one on top of each other, they have to overuse antibiotics. And that, according to the World Health Organization, according to scientists, is one of the greatest threats to humanity we have right now. The majority of our antibiotics are being used for animals, but it is a breeding ground for antibiotic-resistant diseases. It should be chilling to folks that so many antibiotic-resistant strains are out there now. And so that's one thing. The second crisis that we don't talk enough about is what's happening with the mass extinction of pollinators and other animals like birds and the like. This way we're farming right now, the overuse of chemicals, that is an existential threat to humanity as well if we start seeing bees and pollinators and not to mention the mass extinction. And the final thing, which I, I mentioned before, but I need to drive that point home one more time. Our society is the sickest society on the planet. We have about 70% of our kids now can't even qualify to join the military. Most of that is because of obesity. A quarter of our children have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetic. Half of all Americans, period, are diabetic or pre-diabetic. I just started looking at some data of 
what it will cost our country by 2050 if we don't solve this because the curve of all of these diet-related diseases is just exploding, including what will go up about three times in the next few decades is Alzheimer's, which some people call it type 3 diabetes. It is very much a diet-related illness. And so the fact that, again, where I live, if I look around, my kids can walk into a bodega and find a Twinkie product cheaper than an apple because of how we subsidize. We're not subsidizing necessarily that, but we're subsidizing all the things that go in there. So we have a crisis that is threatening humanity in every imaginable way. We just had a global meeting on carbon, on the climate change, and a lot of us were stunned. Articles were written about it, how they did not center more the food industry in being a major causer of the problem. And as Leah will tell you, it's not only about 20 to 25 percent of the global warming problems that the food industry is causing. It's the missed opportunity that healthy soil that hasn't been killed, healthy farming, regenerative practices could actually not only stop emitting that much carbon, but begin to sequester it in a more dramatic way. The reason why I'm on the Ag Committee is because every issue I care about, I now realize intersects right there, health and well-being, from uh, workers' rights to entrepreneurs and the original small business people, all the way to racial justice, the fact that we went from over a million black farmers on what land worth today would be hundreds of billions of dollars has now been diminished just to thousands. And so these are the issues what's got me on it. And we haven't begun to fight. Our 2022 is going to sort of be our year to really come out hard on trying to remove what we think is the biggest obstacle to change, which is just empathy. Most Americans don't know of this crisis and don't understand how it's impacting their lives, no matter where they are in this country. Let me stay with you, in fact, because I would have thought that we're in a very bad position now and it's very hard to reverse things, but that culturally some kind of breaks have been put on the situation. What makes it the case that you expect these problems to triple? Just look at the data. So in the last 10 years alone, one decade, the amount of type 2 diabetes amongst black children has doubled, doubled in one decade. We, we have not seen in the last 25 years the rate of increase level off at all of diet-related diseases. In fact, if anything, it's accelerating now in the country. So just looking at the recent trends as a predictor of future trends, we will not be able to afford the Medicaid and Medicare costs of America. It's just as simple as that. Right now, one out of every three government dollars, one out of every three government dollars is going to healthcare. Almost one out of every five dollars in our economy is going to healthcare. And this is not sustainable, uh, this kind of growth of need. And I was in those debates. As you said, I ran for president. The debate was Medicare for all versus expanding the affordable care. We were having the wrong debate. I think that debate is very important and I will always be in it. But one of the debates we should have been having is why do we have this outrageous demand in America for so much health care? Why are we so sick? Because it's not health care, it's disease management with what we're doing right now. And that should stun everybody. And I see it all around me, especially in black and brown communities, have been so moved from their cultural foods. And we're exporting this system. That's the frightening thing for me. I was on a congressional trip to Africa and had a senator whose agenda was to tear down the South African government's tariffs to American chicken because they were doing the bidding of one of these large, almost monopolistic companies that can make that chicken in the most grotesque ways, driving people into poverty, destroying communities with their CAFOs and the mounds and mounds of feces. Now they can do it for pennies for what a more indigenous South African community can do it 
there. So they could undercut their market. This is being exported around the globe. And as you see more and more of our systems, this sort of colonialism of sorts, undermining the way people are raising cattle now that they used to raise livestock the way we did it, there's a problem. And as you watch countries like China, obviously, is a great example, as we all know about the China study, to see there more and more people move to the standard American diet. Interestingly, the acronym is SAD. The more folks globally are moving to our diet, the more consequences it has for climate change, mass extinctions, antibiotic-resistant diseases, to all the kind of ill effects that we've been talking about on this podcast. I saw a lot of shaking of the head there, including on where we're headed. Yeah, I just want to underscore what's behind what the senator's describing, and that is we have made it rational to eat badly, That because the cheapest calories in the supermarket are the least healthy. And why is that? Well, because we subsidize overproduction of corn and soy. And what is that? Those are the building blocks of junk food, of ultra-processed food, and the building blocks of meat. You know, you can't make money selling food that comes off the farm anymore. One of the reasons all these big processors don't own land, don't own chickens, don't own cattle, is because that's where the risk is, the closer you are to the land. They're always upstream. We have created a situation where you have to add value to those cheap agricultural commodities. And that means processing the hell out of it, feeding it to animals. And so the system is about taking these cheap calories and disposing of them in human bodies, in animal bodies, and in cars. Amazing. Cars, literally gasoline. Literally cars. Yeah. You have to engineer that corn and soy to to turn it into a Twinkie and make it irresistible, make it, in fact, addictive. And they're very good at it. And we succumb because they're pressing ancient evolutionary buttons, our, our craving for sweetness, our craving for fat. Michael, I've heard you talk about this. So I just want to throw a raw meat to you is the other thing that gets me is when I walk through a supermarket is how these products are then labeled as healthy. They're heart healthy. And they were being told that this is what we should be. Well, the the confusion of the consumer is definitely a big problem. Our food labeling system doesn't warn people off of uh, food that is really unhealthy. And other countries have figured out how to do this. In South America, where they're much more aggressive about regulating junk food, they have skull and crossbones on some kinds of food to signal that this is candy. This is an actual food. And part of that also is that the industry commissions dubious nutrition research so that they can put health claims on it. And we don't police those claims very well. So you do have consumers that in many cases are eating food they believe to be healthy. That isn't. And that contributes to the problem too. It all goes back to the excessive power of the industry. We had a great illustration of this during the pandemic when John Tyson was alarmed because local health authorities were closing down his meat plants took out a full-page ad and essentially threatened the president and shook down Donald Trump and actually induced him to override the public health authorities and open meat plants without any effort to mitigate the risks that the workers were facing. That is the definition of an industry that has gotten too powerful, that is a threat to the republic, not just to our health. Leo, do you use corn in feed and how do you avoid this? Well, I want to bring the relational piece into this because I think this is really important to talk when we're talking about access to healthy, culturally appropriate, affordable foods, especially for poor communities, communities of color. And this is what we're doing every day on the farm. And so I just want to say that there's a common myth out there that if folks were just educated, quote unquote, they would make the right choices when in fact it's about access. It's about being able to afford the food, having transportation, having it in your neighborhood. And it's actually 
even maybe more so about relationship. And why I say that is because in doing this work for a couple of decades, we've had thousands of young folks come out to the farm who are quite addicted to Twinkies and quite skeptical about lettuce and tomatoes and whatnot. And they spend one day growing and cooking food on the farm and are completely enamored and hooked on that vegetarian burrito or that noodles with sauce that they made and go home and tell their families. And this matters because there is a component to the work that is about having the food available, but there's also a component to the work about building relationship and there's psycho-spiritual benefits with that. I recently read a study that children's access to green space is so correlated with their mental health that if a, a child doesn't grow up with green space, they're 55% more likely to develop a psychological disorder by adulthood. So it's, yes, the food, but also the green space, the chance to grow your own food, the chance to have a community garden, to come out to a farm where people look like you and you feel cultural belonging. And that's the work as well. And why I'm really excited about the senator's work, because he's including the farmer education and the community work in things like the Justice for Black Farmers Act. Do we use corn? We grow corn. We grow an indigenous variety of Mohican corn that was rematriated to us by the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation in Wisconsin. That's the land that we're on. And we nixtamalize the corn and we make it into tortillas in the ancestral way and we feed it to our community. We really believe that essentially a healed food system would look like corn being reunited with her sister's beans and squash and growing <laughs> right. in a polyculture. That's where we're at. And it is 40% more productive on a per acre basis than monoculture. So the myth that you need industrial ag to be productive is not true. These indigenous polycultures are highly productive, and they also produce real food. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay, but what white burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More, where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, we are good and scared and flabbergasted, so let's move now to 2022 as possibly a year where things turn around, beginning with the Farm Systems Reform Act. Senator, what are you aiming to do here? 
a number of things to deal with the antitrust issues that Michael brought up at the top of the conversation. Place immediately a moratorium on all expanding and new large CAFOs, and then phase out the rest of these large CAFOs by 2040. Hold the corporate integrators responsible for the pollution and the harm that they're causing. Remember, Michael said it right, they're upstream. They force contract farmers into these tournament systems that are opaque. They don't know how they're being paid. They don't know where the money comes, but all the burden is on them. All the liability is on them. Well, we want to shift that to make the big corporate integrators now responsible for the environmental harm and desolation. Financially responsible. Financially responsible, yes. And then what Leah is saying is really important. We want to create a $100 billion fund for farmers who want to escape the industrial farm livestock broken sort of system because there are other ways that are very profitable, that are sustainable, and that add to our solutions to the problems we've outlined and not. So we want to really create a fund that helps farmers to bridge out of the systems that they're trapped in. The Packers and Stockyard Act was set about to protect family farmers and ranchers, and we want to strengthen the Packers and Stockyard Act, go back to it and be more explicit in prohibiting certain actions that are being done that have caused so much consolidation. Can I ask a quick question about the fund? Yeah, go ahead. Is it freestanding or is it a matter of readjusting the 2 to 98% relationship? A couple things. One is it's a freestanding fund that farmers could apply to begin to transition. I talked to the only farmer in the Senate who has a great story, my dear friend, uh, John Tester, who just to save his farm, he switched to organic farming and found people that he could directly market to and now is sustained at making more money. And he looks at some of the other people that are farming as really being trapped to a broken system and we want to get them out of it. But this is not the only bill. So there's other things that we're looking at, including my fight in the current bill that we're trying to do through reconciliation in the Senate. We've got about $28 billion right now and we're holding on to it so far to help to expand the programs that was mentioned before, one of them called the EQIP program. These are all Washington acronyms, but they are what help family farmers to get resources they need to do more regenerative practices. For me, it's going to be a full court press. In this next year, we're going to be introducing a lot of legislation to do everything from the outrageous country of origin. Remember, these big integrated companies are multinational. And so they take meat from other countries and they slap an American label on it, package it in this country, slap a label on it, and market it as made in the U.S. products. That hurts ranchers and, and that hurts American jobs. So there's a lot of things in this system we're going to take on from a lot of different perspectives. This is one of the central ones because every farmer we talked to was concerned about corporate consolidation and what it was doing to drive them to the brink of bankruptcy. Given this dynamic, you would think the number one constituency here would be solid, often Republican farmers. Do things break down here in a traditional kind of Democratic Republican way? I don't think they do. I actually think the politics behind what Senator Booker is doing is really important part of it. We've seen this intensifying rural-urban split in this country politically. And we should remember, it wasn't that long ago that a Democrat, Barack Obama, won Iowa twice. And part of the reason he did was promising to deal with agricultural consolidation. I think it was his failure to do that is one of the reasons the Democrats have lost a lot of the Midwest. And the way to regain it is to talk about these issues. And I think that it's an enormous opportunity. I hope the Democrats seize it. But the politics used to be very different around there. There was populist politics in the Midwest, and that's kind of curdled into a kind of Trumpian populism. But it used to be directed against economic interests, not coastal elites. 
And I think that if we can return to that, it would be a good thing for the country as well as for the farmers. Let me stick with that. The particular story you've told about, of course, the farmers and producers is not just tragic, but should really hit home in middle America. But how do you tell the story that makes middle America want to change its own food habits and the very well-established meat, starch, and potatoes dinners that have been the American way since the 50s? I agree with Michael. I don't think it's that much of a stretch. Folks want to survive. I think of a farmer in our network, Clifton Slades, a black farmer, was doing large-scale conventional monoculture. And when he found out that you could grow organic seeds on a fraction of the acres and make more money, he was happy to switch. And so signed up with Mama Ira Wallace at Southern Exposure Seeds and and flipped over and taught his neighbors. The Southeast African-American Farmers Organic Network has been supporting black farmers in transitioning from monocropping and conventional agriculture to organic when the economics make sense. And so with these proposed legislative packages, the economics will make even more sense and they'll actually be an infrastructure to support that transition. I don't think fundamentally that folks are opposed to taking care of the earth or taking care of their health, but have been forced through corporate consolidation and all of this systems that be to go down this path and want to get out. Does COVID play into this? Oh, yeah. COVID was a teachable moment about the food system. We saw major parts of it fall apart for a while. I think one of the things that isn't adequately appreciated is that a bad diet is one of the best predictors for a severe case of COVID. That 49% of the people who died of COVID were overweight or had hypertension. A very high percentage of them had diabetes. These are all diseases of inflammation, and that really is what the standard American diet does to the body. And it is in the inflamed body that COVID finds its most hospitable home and seems to do the most damage. This is a predictor for a a bad case of COVID. Like so many others, the American food system kills us slowly in normal times and quickly during a pandemic. And that's exactly what's happening. Picking up on what Leah said, though, too, I think. Her point about getting people onto the farm and cooking and eating from the farm is so powerful, and that has to happen in schools. I think that the idea of having school gardens and cooking classes together, linking those two things, it really is in part the collapse of a culture of everyday cooking that makes us vulnerable to fast food and convenient food. And we know that people who cook, regardless of what they cook, are healthier than people who don't. Because if you're going to cook, first of all, you reclaim control over your diet. You know what you're eating. You're not using those obscure ingredients on the Twinkie label. Even if you cook junk food for yourself, you're going to be better off than buying it. We're losing that culture very quickly. And the place to teach it is in the schools. And home ec, of course, was rejected because it was sexist. And it was. I took shop and girls got to do home ec. But I think we should be teaching cooking to all kids. They thoroughly enjoy doing it, and it changes the way they eat, and it changes the way their families eat. I love that drive-through versus drive-by slogan. Well, you struck such a hopeless note uh, before, and I I want you to know I'm a prisoner of hope, and and part of the people that give me hope are your two other guests. Uh, They are revolutionaries, and they remind me of sort of the civil rights movement in the 1950s where you had all these truth-tellers willing to stand up regardless of how much they were cutting across the grain and begin to reveal the truth of a morally bankrupt system. And so in the case of food, there is a tremendous possibility here. My parents taught me, they were proud African-American parents, but they were very clear that 
the civil rights movement wasn't a, a successful movie because of black folks. It was successful because it was a rainbow coalition of people. In a lot of my legislation, I'm, I'm surprised at the diversity of coalition. Like who would have ever thought I would get farmers and ranchers who are willing to work with humane society, animal rights folks, who are willing to work with environmentalists, who are willing to work with environmental justice people, who are willing to work with workers' rights folks, who are willing to work with people who are concerned about families and children and the well-being. There's a powerful makings of a coalition in this country because what these big corporate near monopolies have done is they've created everybody else's losing but they're winning. As Michael said, the pandemic was horrible for food workers. It was horrible for end consumers who saw prices going up. It was horrible for the people that were producing and forced to kill hogs in the field. But the one people that made record profits during this time were the people who have been controlling the system from a near monopolistic area. So I think what gives me hope is the voices are growing louder. You're seeing more people become aware and you're seeing a, an unexpected coalition of self-interest amongst a number of different people being tied together. And that's what I want to see. That's my hope for the next five years, is that more of us join together, unexpected coalitions, rural, urban, cross-party, to understand that this is all, our lives depend upon this, our families, our futures. We're all in this together. We have a common purpose to address the common pain that we've been suffering for decades now. Fair enough. Look, it's a really useful corrective. I didn't mean to sound a hopeless note, but rather meant to underscore how wide-ranging and toxic the problem is overall. But I think there's an end for now anyway, and the work that all three of you and many, many other people are doing will bear, we have to hope, its harvest. So for now, we put this to the side, though. I hope we can reconvene in a year and see what 2022 has brought from all three of you and many others. I want to just now thank you very much, Leah, Michael, and Senator Booker for shining a spotlight on the problem and pointing the way towards some solutions. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Okay, that is all the time we have for this special Talking Feds edition on Big Agriculture. Thank you very much again to Leah Penniman, Michael Pollan, and Senator Cory Booker. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions about the spike in drug overdoses, the rise of a new sort of autocracy around the world, and the future of the workplace. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we have and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal or political systems for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, 
As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Maliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer, Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Rhea Cohen-Gilbert and Kalena Tano were contributing researchers and writers on this episode. Our consulting producers are Dustin Canals and Andrea Carla Michaels. A special thanks to David Maraskin, Food Project Senior Attorney with Public Justice, for his help with this episode. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Later.